Welcome to Give Him Hell Brigham. How you do tonight, Jeff? Doing good, Garrett. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's uh, first of all, if we have any, I haven't looked at our country's demographics, but happy Canada Day to any Canadian listeners that we have out there. It is July 1st. Um, I was reminded by I've got a Canadian uncle and a Canadian aunt and a couple coworkers. We have a couple offices up in Canada, and so uh, happy holiday to them. If you happen to be listening, um, less yeah. than one person. Less than one percent. You're looking it up too. Less yes. than one percent from British Columbia. So happy, happy Canada Day to you, our less than one percent listener. It's you are a very elite group. Not you are few, but you are strong. Um, <laughs> so you know it's it's been a good week, and uh, just you probably noticed. I don't know. Maybe if you notice, I when I'm about to start a podcast, I look at the length. That this is going to be a shorter episode. Um, we have a, a bonus episode coming out. Um, that we recorded so check out for that so it's going to be you're going to get just as much content it's just going to be split over two episodes tonight um so with that um we've got our normal things to go into um starting out so our hellion of the week um this was one i picked this and um i talked to jeff about him we said yes that is awesome and so our hellion of the week is bryn campbell and she is the daughter of one Kyle Campbell, who is a good friend of the show. Um, his handle is at Y underscore soup on Twitter. If you are so inclined or do not follow him, he's a great guy. And so his daughter, I did not know that in Utah, there is a girls high school football league and her team won the championship. So they lost in overtime, their first game in the, of the season and then ran the table through and won the championship and she actually because of covid that is why she even decided to try playing football because she is a big dancer she wants she has a goal of becoming a cougarette one day and but because everything with dance got canceled when things started opening back up this league was one of the first things that said hey we're opening and she said hey dad i think mom dad i think i want to try this and he was like okay cool go for it and so she decided because of everything that was going on, she couldn't dance. So she said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to try something I've never done before and ended up, you know, winning a trophy, going all the way and winning the ship. That's incredible. And that's exactly what Hellion of the week is all about is people who are just killing it in life. Bryn Campbell hats off to you. Um, first off hats off to, to all of those girls who are in this girls football league. I hope that's something that continues to grow. Um, and I, I'm thrilled. I think it's awesome. Kyle Campbell, friend of the show, friend of uh, Cougar Sports Insider. Uh, and believe it or not, he's not Ron Swanson. A lot of people make that mistake after they follow him on Twitter for a while and then meet him in real life. He's not Ron Swanson, uh, but a great guy, um, great family, and, and really cool story for Bryn Campbell. Congratulations to her and her team for the championship and even more so for the Hellion of the Week honor. Yes, congratulations, Brian. Now, moving on to our quarantine kitchen. Jeff, what do you have tonight? Because I've got, I've got a rant. It's this you've, been, <laughs> you've been looking forward to talking about this. Yes. Um, well, what I have, I put it on Twitter today, knowing that I was going to, to come on to the show, we were going to have quarantine kitchen. Uh, green chili mac and cheese there's a lot of different ways to smoke mac and cheese, and they're all good. I mean, the smoke mac and cheese is never bad. Uh, the most common way, and I think what people usually do, is they'll cook the noodles first, uh, you know, just boil noodles in water like you normally would, 
and then they'll make their cheese sauce and then they'll combine the two together and stick it in the smoker towards the end and just kind of add a little bit of the smoke flavor to it. What I did today, and I don't do it every time because it just, it, it takes a little bit longer, but my favorite way to cook mac and cheese on the smoker is to actually start with dry noodles that are uncooked. Um, so on this green chili mac and cheese, it was a ton of food. And you start with the dry noodles in the tin, you add a ton of cream. I put in, what did I do? Three cups of heavy cream and then five cups of milk. And there's so much cream there and so much liquid that you could really add as much cheese as you want. I did a pound of shredded cheddar and then four ounces of mozzarella and four ounces of pepper jack. So a total of a pound and a half of cheese. Um, I do a full jar, really just any like chili verde salsa that you can find a full jar of chili verde salsa. Um, I've got to remember what else I put in this. Uh, one of my favorite seasonings, and we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can buy this is Cattleman's Grill Ranchero seasoning. It's one of the best, um, poultry and pork seasonings that I have ever used. I throw that into, um, into the mac and cheese, into the tin kind of mix it all together and then just throw it in the smoker, 250 degrees, cook it for about an hour, go in, stir it, make sure that your noodles aren't sticking to the bottom of the thing. And then you leave it, uh, you leave it in there for another hour and then add some bacon, um, let the bacon kind of cook with it. And then the last step that I did today with about a half hour left in the cook in total, but it cooked on the smoker for about three hours with about a half hour left. I took Cheez-Its, and I took Parmesan cheese and I crushed the cheese. It's all together, put it into a bag. And that became my topping for this green chili mac and cheese. A lot of people use breadcrumbs. Some use pretzels. Danny Holmgren, he suggested to use Dots pretzels instead of Cheez-Its, which would probably be incredible. Dots pretzels are. Those are, we could do a whole segment about how great Dots pretzels are. If you can find we them. We absolutely could. And I had never even thought of that. So that would be an excellent addition to this mac and cheese. I did cheese. It's a Parmesan today. Throw it on the top. Bam. That's it. It's, it's easy. It's delicious. That is what I made this week. I made a few things this week, made some queso earlier that was on Twitter. Um, I think I made that on Monday, but t- today was green chili mac and cheese and everybody should have green chili mac and cheese. So what temp do you run that at? To yeah, sure 250 the, the entire time. Okay, so the noodles don't get too mushy or anything, you know. No, yeah, kind of... and that's what's good about it is is cooking them from a you know right out of the box from a dry noodle. Uh, they never take on any of the water, right? So all the moisture that they take on is from the cream and the milk and from that salsa. So the noodles, they just even if they do overcook, which they didn't in three hours, they cook just about. There's still maybe even a little al dente. Uh, but if they do overcook, they overcook with that flavor, not just a boiled water flavor. It tastes a little bit different. So you don't feel like it's as overcooked. But ultimately, uh, this was not overcooked at all. For about two hours, 45 minutes, three hours, you'll be just fine. And I will have to put that in the rotation. I seem to try that. That sounds great. Um, I love anything with the green chili. I did order some Chinook cedary seeds last week after yeah. we talked. Tried the hatch chili, tried the Parmesan and pepper. I got some barbecue too, but I haven't opened those up yet. And those hatch chili seeds, man, I don't think I've ever eaten anything. I, I've never had anything hatch chili that I don't like. It's true. It's all good. Those seeds though, those are impeccable. The, um, do you have a sprouts up near your house? Like the grocery store? Do they have one of those up there? Uh, no, I don't think we do. 
Dude, so they have they have a, their store brand. They have some Hatch Chili like potato chips that are that's the only place you get them. They're almost they're often sold out because they're like the most popular flavor. But they are wonderful. So if you live near a Sprouts, you can go try some of the Hatch Chili chips. Um, Sprout is that an Arizona thing? Uh, I think they originally started in Arizona, but I know there's a couple in Utah. I mean, they're all over the country. Like there's some out, there's one out here by me. Um, so it's, they, I don't, let me see. I'm sure I gotta there's find a way to get my hands on some of those. Hatch they are good. So there are, how many are there in Utah? There's five locations in Utah. So Murray, Orem, Salt Lake, Holiday, and South Jordan. Okay. I'm in. So go try some of those, and uh, they are wonderful. So my rant, Jeff, you had a couple of weeks where you had a rant instead of, you know, something that you were actually cooking. My rant this week, you know, we talked about don't overcooking your chicken, and this kind of goes along with that, is that toaster ovens do not get the love that they deserve by the world. I'm so excited to hear this because I never, I, I've really never used toaster ovens. Like do you have one? I don't have one. And up until honestly, probably like two or three years ago, if you would have said toaster oven, I would have just thought toaster. Like I never like comprehended that there was this toaster oven apparatus. We never used it growing up. I'd seen it on TV and in my head it was just like, well, now you have a microwave. So this is just some old thing. So I'm fascinated by what you're about to say today. I know I was you once upon a time. And then when we got married, someone gave us a toaster oven and it really just changed my life you know honestly and it still yeah. is the so going back how many times well how many times have you gotten pizza for lunch this week this week <laughs> is it wednesday okay i've had it twice this week so do you have do you ever have leftovers when you buy this pizza garrett you don't look the way that i do i have leftovers. <laughs> there are no leftovers that even have a chance to survive by the time i'm done eating so the allure of a toaster oven may not be so big, but it's perfect for reheating pizza. When we got that 24-inch pie, and it was just gigantic, and it took us three days to eat it, toaster oven is great. It's way better. You know what? Microwave to reheated pizza is horrible. The reason people eat cold pizza for breakfast is because putting pizza in a microwave ruins it. Not okay. so with a toaster oven. Toast it back up. Boom. It takes five seconds. I actually tested this because I was curious to see how accurate the um, temperature was. So I got my fireboard thermometer and put it on the grate in my toaster oven and actually tested to see how accurate the temperature was. And it does. And so I tracked it and it got up to 490 degrees in like wow. three and a half minutes. Wow. Why so, don't heat up that fast? Exactly. So it's, you need pizza. So if we make, a lot of times we'll make cookies and we'll keep the dough in the fridge and it's like we'll just pull it out and make like one or two cookies at a time in the toaster oven it takes 30 seconds to heat up you know it doesn't take long to heat up you can have a fresh baked cookie whenever you want it perfect for eating pizza but it's been hot and muggy here the last few days you know there's only there's me my wife and an 18 month old you know it's not cooking for a huge old big family i don't want to heat up the whole house to do it so the last few days like tonight i we had some chicken and rice for dinner and i just took chicken out of the fridge and threw some yard bird on it because you can never go wrong with yard bird True. and threw it in the toaster oven, cranked out to 450 for 20 minutes. Boom. It was done. Didn't heat up my whole house. Didn't have to wait forever to heat it up. Didn't have any pans to clean. Cause I just threw some foil down and it on. It was like peel the foil off, throw it away, had zero cleanup. And 
took me less than 20 minutes to make dinner, or about 20 minutes to make dinner. It's perfect. Toaster so, ovens do not get the love that they deserve. I have a question about this. So, and maybe this is the same as a toaster oven, but I worked in an office doing data entry right after my mission. And in their break room, they had a Totino's pizza oven that was like Totino's branded. And it was specifically like the, the dimensions and the size. I don't know if they even make them anymore, but the dimensions and the size were only for a Totino's pizza. And you know what? It wouldn't even work anymore because Totino's pizzas are square now. And this was back when they were circled. But my question for you is, I mean, is, is like a pizza oven, is that different than a toaster oven? Um, I think I'm assuming the way like the Tostita, the Totinos are, it would be the same. I'm guessing. Cause I mean, it's like, there's, so it's like, there's a broils. So our oven has a broil setting. I mean, you can do toast, bagel, bake or broil. And there's just a knob you twist that you can go bake from like, Oh, and it has a warmer setting. So you can go from like, I think the lowest it goes is like 180 or 150, something like that all the way up to, I can crank it up to 500 degrees and it's, you know, it's awesome for little things like that. It's like for making pasta or something, it's like garlic bread. I don't need to turn on the huge big broiler in the oven to make garlic bread for two people. Just, it costs me a lot of money in gas. Well, not that much money, but you know, it's like, it heats up my whole 30 cents. (laughs) It heats up my whole house. And you know, if I'm doing something, heating the oven up to 450 degrees and you know, that takes, you know, it's going to take 15, I'm spend 10, 15 minutes of waiting for the oven to be done, or I can do it in three minutes. If you're only cooking for a few people or don't need a lot, like toaster ovens are awesome. I'm fascinated by this. I don't, <laughs> if you're still listening to the podcast, like first we commend you for making it to this far in the episode, but I, I'm seriously fascinated. I use an air fryer kind of the same way that if I have something I don't want to microwave because it'll end up all squishy and gross, I'll stick it in an air fryer. But a pizza oven, isn't it a thing from like the 70s? It's still maybe more applicable today than it was even then? I think so. I like that's honestly, we've looked at getting an air fryer. We have an Instant Pot and they have like the air fryer lids that you can put on and things. And yeah. we looked at it and we're kind of like, well, everything we do with that, we do in our toaster oven already. So in a lot of ways, it's pretty similar, I think. But it's, yeah, it's just in terms of how hot you can get it so fast. If you're only cooking for one or two people or need something quick, they're awesome. That's incredible. That's incredible. What a, what a segment. Yeah. Oh, I will also, sometimes I'll make a sandwich. You know, if you go to like Subway or Quiznos, I don't even know if Quiznos are still around anymore. You get, you always have to get your sandwich toasted, whatever you do. Toast oven does that thing in like 30 seconds. I love this. I need to go find a toaster. I know they're cheap. They're like 30 bucks. I've got to go find a toaster oven. Let me Apparently, see if I can... we need a toaster oven sponsor. Look, we're still looking for a sponsor. I have been begging Chinook Cedary to sponsor the podcast, but those cowards won't do it. Uh, maybe we need to turn, I don't even know, Presto. Does Presto do toaster ovens? I, I, I have no idea who makes, it know who makes ours. Uh, let me even see if I can find where. Anyway, while you're looking that up, what a segment of Quarantine Kitchen uh, green chili mac and cheese, and frankly, I want to reheat green chili mac and cheese in a toaster oven now just to see what it's like, and apparently get a toaster oven. Um, now, I, it, it, this is a, an interesting segue now. We're going to move from this segment that is, I think, probably the longest quarantine kitchen that we've had, but I'm pretty but convinced. most informative. Yeah, well, that's fair, and it, it will change your life like it has yours, and I, it's going to change mine. 
Uh, so it's an interesting segue to now saying, hey, please support the podcast by buying our T-shirts on Teespring. Um, but please support the podcast by buying our T-shirts on Teespring. We just published one uh, today. I guess published is published the word. I don't know. We just made a shirt live, released a shirt. There we go. Released a shirt today. All it is is it's a simple shirt, and it just says in big, bold letters right across the front, Zuby. And I think it's time for us as BYU fans, Utah fans have used that to, and frankly, Aggie, I guess Utah State fans, they tried to use it, but I mean, what even is an Aggie fan? They have tried to, to you know, degrade us as BYU fans by using this term, Zuby, and it's been going on for decades. And it's time for us to take that term back and just embrace it. I, I think about this all the time. I'm, we, we just alluded to the fact that I never have leftovers and I look the way that I look. I'm a big dude. There's no question about it. And why do I, why do I tell everybody that I'm a big fat dude? Because now nobody else can say that about me. Nobody else can say anything about my You, you fat amied yourself. Yeah, I fat amied myself. Nobody else can say anything about my size that I haven't already said. So it's no longer offensive. And let's take that Zuby. And I know nobody's actually been offended by the term Zuby. But let's take that word and let's embrace it. And let's let everybody, those Aggie fans, all seven or eight of them, and the Utah fans, let's make them find something else and get a little bit more creative than recycling decades-old jargon that was supposedly supposed to make BYU fans feel bad. So that's the shirt that we released today. I think we have uh, 10 or 12 shirts in the store today. There's lots there. We're constantly releasing more. If I could find a graphic designer to make a toaster oven design for us that we can slap a logo on, I got a hunch that's going to end up on the storefront real quick. Um, so check us out. That's how we are trying to fund this podcast rather than inundating you guys with a bunch of ads and things like that that nobody wants to listen to. We have this, this supplemental store. We're not trying to get rich. We never will. But if you can support the podcast, it goes a long way in helping us upgrade and, and continue to produce shows. The I think I loved your Zuby shirt that you put on. Uh, I also want to call attention to the shirt, the basketball shirt I put out last week. Yes. Um, <laughs> was it your dad that said it was too far? It was too much, and it was over the top. Yeah, he said he said uh, that shirt's a little too much for me. I'm not a fan. And I said, great, then <laughs> we're on the right track. Yes. So we we do offer a shirt in the spirit of our love for BYU basketball that says our Pope isn't Catholic. Because he's not, I'm sure he would get along great with Pope Francis. I'm sure Pope Francis is a swell guy. You got to be pretty decent to end up being the Pope, you know, the pontifex, if you will, in 2020. But our Pope is not Catholic. He is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I like it. So, <laughs> shirt, cheap. We really try. And just for, for context, um, we, we haven't, I don't think we've said this out loud, Garrett, but I think that we should. Uh, we have gone against every recommendation from teespring on how we should price these shirts and we're really they want them ten dollars more than every like across the board yeah it's insane we're trying to make them as cheap as we possibly can just because it's fun that's what it is it's fun um another thing we're trying to do to just kind of help bring some notoriety to the show get our name out there a little bit i've got a bunch of stickers we're just mailing them out to people no charge, no anything. All you do is DM us your address and I'll send you an envelope full of stickers. 
Um, so if you're interested in those, maybe we'll do that for anybody who leaves a review on, uh, on the Apple store or on the, uh, the Apple podcasts, anybody who leaves five-star review, we will send you an envelope full of stickers. Even if you don't just reach out to us, we'll send you an envelope full of stickers, support the show, go to Teespring, do whatever you can to help us out. We appreciate it a ton and it really helps us grow. And I think at this point, Garrett, we would be remiss if we didn't start to talk at least a little bit about BYU athletics. What do you think? Yes. So we finished up the offense last week and now it is time to get into our defensive uh, preview. So we are going to go through each position um, in next week's episode. You know, like I said, we have the bonus episode coming out tomorrow as well. And so this week, you know, we're just going to talk about the staff in general and the scheme change that is being planned for the 2020 season. Um, so kind of, I guess let's start with the scheme change first because that builds on the staff and kind of our confidence in, you know, what they're doing. So the first three years of Kalani Satake's tenure, you know, Elisa Tuiaki was running a base 4-3. Last year they kind of switched that up or they stayed kind of in a 4-3 or almost, I think they kind of went more to a 3-4 and everyone was dropping eight. And that was what we did constantly. We always heard about dropping eight, dropping out. Why is everything so vanilla? We don't even do anything. We never blitz. That was something they said never blitz. People trying to say that they couldn't remember a single blitz the entire season and things, which it happened. It just didn't happen as much as we would like. And, so, and real quick, before we move on, when BYU did blitz, they were bad. Like BYU got like burned on blitzes way more frequently than those blitzes converted. Off the top of my head, and I've watched all of these games a lot at this point, I can remember dying getting to the quarterback on a couple of corner blitzes. I think he had two sacks for the year and they both came on corner blitzes. And then I remember, I think there was against Tennessee. I can remember one or two off the top of my head, but by and large, when BYU blitzed, they got smoked. Cole McDonald ate up BYU's blitzes. So I think that there, some of the reason BYU didn't blitz last year, they weren't good. Like they could not get home even when they sent pressure. Right. So, I mean, that is part of it, but this year the word on the street is that we'll be moving to more, of a, it's being called a four-two-five, but I think that's going to be more of what they ran the first few years. Because even those first couple of years, like I remember in 2016, 2017, you had Fred Warner. Yes, he was an outside linebacker, but he was lining up out on the numbers, man up with the receiver the way a safety would. Yeah. So he, so you know, basically that it is going to be officially four-two-five, but that nickel back is not going to be a traditional nickel corner. It will be like a flashlight, whatever you want to call it, of a hybrid safety outside backer type position. Um, so I guess, do you think that, I guess, what is there? I mean, we have the same defensive line that has struggled the last few years to get pressure the last two seasons. And, you know, getting pressure up front has been a struggle. There's not really a linebacker who is a great pass rusher. So I guess what is going to happen this year? What do you think that change is going to bring with the you know, intentional scheme change going forward of, you know, how are we going to get pressure? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. I, I think it comes from the scheme change, maybe more than the players themselves. Um, BYU, I mean, look, they don't, they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have Nick Bosa right off the edge that's going to be able to, or Chase Young, that's going to be able to just rack up sacks. They don't have that. They don't have a Bronson Kapusi even. But BYU has players who can get to the quarterback. Uriah Leotawa, um, what did he finish the season with? 23 pressures and he was playing less than 50% of the snaps. I mean, so the guy, the guy has the ability to get to the quarterback. And this year, 
the names that everybody's going to talk about are Tyler Batty and Alema Pilimai off the edge. And I think those two have the potential to be great. I think that the biggest difference, though, is going to be from the play calling and from – I don't even want to say the scheme because I think that we're getting hung up on 4-3, 4-2-5. It's all semantics. If, if you want to consider that 215-pound Max Tooley a linebacker or a safety, whatever, uh, you could make an argument that BYU was playing with two linebackers for a lot of last year too, right? Whenever they had four down linemen and it was Chaz Ayu or Max Tooley on the field, they were – by and large, safeties. They were just a little bit bigger. Uh, so now they're going to be a little bit smaller than a linebacker, but ultimately it's the same uh, same assignments, going to be similar assignments. I, I wouldn't get lost in the semantics. But I'm interested to see what BYU does up front in terms of their you – know, there, there weren't very many twists. There weren't very many stunts. There, weren't, there wasn't any creativity along the defensive line. It was just line up and go and try to beat the guy in front of you. And BYU was so content in sitting back with eight men, eight men in coverage, and they weren't disguising it at all, that it was super easy calls for the offensive, opposing offensive lines to say, hey, look, we're going to double Tonga. We're going we're gonna, to you know, line up a tight end on the left side, and we're going to double whoever it is on the right side. And that tight end does a quick chip block, and basically everybody's double teamed on that three-man front. And so – I, I think it comes from scheme in the sense of what BYU does to disguise what they're doing. I, I hope that Elisa Tuiaki, Kalani Sataki, Ed Lamb, whoever's in charge of that show, I hope that they're not content to just say, hey, look, here's our coverage. Go beat us. Because if anything, if last year proved anything, it's that when BYU sits in that coverage and says, go beat us, they'll get beat. Uh, they've got to get more creative. I don't think it's necessarily a schematic thing as much as it is just a play calling thing and a play design thing. Uh, try to play def- play an offensive style of defense where you're going to make something happen rather than simply trying to sit back and just prevent everything from happening. Right. And it's, I mean, even then still, it, obviously the defense part of it is we've been so used to having great defenses and it, Really, last year was the first year where the defense took a step back and was in a similar ballpark with the offense because people, even in 2018, people hated on, you know, unless Tuiaki and defensive performance, but it was still in 2016, 2018, there were very good defenses. In 2017, the defense did what it could considering there was zero offensive help to go along with it. And so that obviously affected into the, that play calling. But I mean, even last year, 2018 or sorry two years ago 2018 that according to sp plus that was the best defense that of the satake era in terms of points allowed per game on a neutral field against an average opponent you know that was you know it was that was the best team that byu had had or you know on the field with that defense and so it was even better than you know like the 2014 to 2015 bronco teams you know and really was similar to kind of like the 2000 nine 2010 era ish defenses and so but i think we still have some lingering kind of expectations of thinking of the 2012 2013 byu defenses which is almost now a decade ago and you know expecting you know to be able to win games what um in 2012 what did we beat utah state that year was like six to three in the most boring game in history like that you know we expect those kind of games almost and to be able to pull those out and that's just really like it's in most teams it's not 
going to happen because those were elite elite defenses and you know those that 2012 team was the best defense in BYU history and you know having I mean, even last year it was still above average nationally and it wasn't you know it wasn't the best defense but it really we were in the game almost every like every game there wasn't anything where we got blown out in the defense you know we didn't even have a shot like we you know talk about even the Utah game yeah the defense was horrible and after I mean, the game was done when the rain delay happened. It was game, set, match. So even if you throw the, all, all of that out, I mean, it was – you take two pick sixes off the board and that game is 16 to 12, which it's not great. But if you only give up 16 points, you can't be mad at your defense because you lost a game in which they only gave up 16 points. And so yeah, it's – Even the Washington game, right? Like that was a blowout on the scoreboard in the end. But coming out of halftime, that game was, was not completely out of hand. But uh, – couple turnovers i think there was a was it a fumble recovery for a touchdown or a pick six i can't remember uh, i think it was a pick six it was a fumble uh, on on the washington side of the field that set them up with a short field and then a couple of boom boom quick strikes yeah sure you wish the BYU or the defense could stop them and they didn't on those short fields but i think the offense kind of hurt the defense a little bit even in that game so i'm with you garrett i i think that the defense the defense has just been bland and that's really been the problem the defense has kept points off the scoreboard for the most part. The Hawaii game is an obvious exception. But for the most part, the defense has done a decent job of keeping, uh, keeping teams out of the end zone. It's just been so predictable, right? It just doesn't feel like the, the defense had the ability, and maybe this isn't true if we go back and we look at USC and Tennessee and some of these other games. It's maybe not a factual statement, but it felt that BYU could not get a stop when they needed them. Like you couldn't. You couldn't rely on the defense to go out, get a quick three and out. It just felt like every drive, whether an opponent scored or not, it was a seven, eight, nine, ten play drive, and it was just a grind to get the defense off the field. Ultimately, they got off the field, but, man, they had to work for, for every time they got off the field so hard. There was never anything that came easy. Offenses weren't intimidated at all by the defense. It was just really bland. And at the end of the day, that's really, really hard to sustain week to week over a 13-game schedule. And that's what happens when, you, when you're trying to do that. It just gets tough to have long drives and, and ultimately keep teams out of the end zone. I think that's the biggest reason that BYU lost against USF, is that the defense had been five weeks of tough, grinded out drives and have to you know try to defend for – seven or eight plays every time the offense, the opposing offense goes out onto the field, they were just tired. Even after a bye week, traveling across the country, there were a couple of injuries. The defense is just tired. And I think that played a role throughout the year. BYU's got to find a way to force the action a little bit. And I think it's going to come from, from the staff. I think the staff is going to have to philosophically change what they want to do. And I want to talk a little bit about just the coaching staff and get your thoughts on, on what BYU is at. It was super controversial at the end of the year that BYU did not make any changes on the defensive coaching staff. So real quick, uh, everybody knows who they are, but let's just run through them anyways. Kalani Sataki, obviously the head man, Elias Tuiaki, the defensive coordinator. Ed Lamb is the linebackers coach. He's also the assistant head coach. That doesn't get talked about enough. Ed Lamb has a lot of pull within the locker room. and we, we, we alluded to this a couple of weeks ago on the show 
but is that right? Is that wrong? Right. I mean, that's, a, that's a whole show in and of itself. And if football season gets canceled, we can talk all about Ed Lamb and whether or not that's, he should have the sway that he has, but he does. He, he's, it's almost like BYU has three defensive coordinators in Tuiaki, Sataki and Lamb. Um, and, and then obviously there's more Gennaro Guilford coaching the corners of Preston Hadley coaching the safeties. I think that those two do a great job. Um, I, I, I think it's very clear that they're in the backseat in terms of the, you know, the hierarchy of command or responsibility. They coach their position. I think they coach it well, but game plans, play calling, all that stuff rolls up to some sort of a, I don't know what the, you know, the distribution of responsibilities is between Lamb and Sataki and Tuiaki, but those three are the three who are calling the shots. What are your overall thoughts of BYU running back with that same staff after the, after the mess that was last year? Was it the right call to bring everybody back? I mean, they're really, for me, if you're going to make cha- massive changes on the staff, you need like back-to-back years of just downright bad or, you know, or consistent decline. And there, ha- there just hasn't been that because it's, you know, they were good year one, they were okay year two, they were even better year three. And then last year, they you know stepped back again to where it was a little bit worse in 2017, but it still was not a horrible defense. Like the defense last year was not even anywhere remotely close to how bad the offense was in either 2016 or 2017. And so it, not even in the same ballpark of being that bad. It was just they went from being an above average defense to pretty average. And so being average one season that doesn't get you fired. And so it's, you know, if, you know, you do that multiple years in a row and it starts costing you games, then, you know, that's, that's an issue. But given the amount of youth that was, especially at the linebacking position, then, you know, like you said, I think the secondary does a good job. There was, you know, going into last season, especially at linebacker. And I think what may have been part of the entire scheme thing is, I mean, could you even name, okay, you knew you had Isaiah Kafusi coming back. That was it. That was your only linebacker you could count on. He wasn't even a starter the year before. And so, you know, you have, you have no idea who's coming and he back. Was hurt. He, he got dinged up in fall camp before that Utah game. He, we didn't even know if he would play for sure. Right. So it's you, you have, okay, well, we got Peyton Wilgar. We convinced him not to go into the portal. And so we got a kid who has a walk-on, you know, and that's going to be our best linebacker. And that's who's going to play. And so you're saying, okay, we have no idea if we can count on these guys. They have no real game experience. Do we need a plan around protecting you know, that middle, like if someone beats us over the top, they beat us over the top. Maybe we're going to give up a little bit, but like we can't expose, you know, that the five to 15 range because our linebackers, we have no idea what we have in the linebacking group ended up performing pretty well, you know, considering things and they got better as the year went on. And so I think that may have been part of it is, you know, you just go in and by the time you get to that point, say, okay, well, we don't have time to do a complete new install or this is what our strengths are. And it was, I felt like the entire season was never trying to play to any strength. And I couldn't even tell you what the strength of that defense was besides teams were not going to run at Kairostonga. And the entire point of that defense last year was to mitigate concerns and try to cover up weaknesses. And so whether that gets fixed this year, I don't know. But if, I mean, it's, obviously we see it but it's without being in practice every day and you know knowing what they were trying to do if you know that could have been a collective decision by all three coaches where they'd be like oh man our like 
we are host if we don't like we have to try to we're just doing damage control and that's really all we're going to be able to do this year and try to make it work and if they really felt it was that bad and then somehow they made those bad players into something average then that could have been a great coaching job you know depending on what they thought that they had going into the season um you could make the same argument that the secondary there were just as many question marks coming into the year last year and so maybe maybe you're right maybe it was fear even the linebackers and the secondary you really didn't know what you had with with either one of those groups if you remember going into last year Troy Warner was hurt that was a big deal Chris Wilcox was hurt that was a big deal um Dimitri Gallo was supposed to come in and do big things on the on the uh, defense last year and he ended up, you know, only playing a couple of games, and then he left the team. Uh, Keenan Ellis was scratched before, you know, from the roster before the season started. Eric Ellison uh, was signed and expected to come in and play nickelback, and he never, he never even made it to campus. So the secondary had a lot of question marks too. You were rolling with Austin Lee and Dan Gunwoloku, who you knew, and then you had what four games of Isaiah Heron's freshman year to kind of hope that you knew what you had with him. And you had D'Angelo Mandel, who, who was great at times and, and not great at other times. Looked a little bit like Chris Wilcox during his freshman campaign. And that was, that was kind of your secondary. You didn't know what it was going to be. So I think you're on to something there. Um, we mentioned Dimitri Gallo, and this is just a little quick tangent. Dimitri Gallo is, uh, you would have known about this. I think that we're still the only outlet that has said anything about Dimitri Gallo. You've been harping, you've been saying this for a while now, too. And so he, he wasn't on the team last year. Well, he was on the team at the beginning of last year. And then he left the team. He had some off-the-field stuff. I'm not talking honor code grade stuff, just mental health stuff that he had to figure out. And, and he took some time, and he got it straightened away. And uh, he came back for spring. He was on the roster. Uh, he's no longer on the roster. That's the news at this point. Um, nobody's talking about it, and Gallo's not on social media. So uh, people who, that's where their news comes from is Twitter. They're not going to know that, but Dimitri Gallo is no longer on the roster. It was a, a mutual decision. Uh, you could probably read into that scholarship crunch a little bit, and that Gallo, you know, he, he may not have been as in love with football as, as he seemed to be uh, for, you know, based on what we heard last year and what he was kind of dealing with. Hope nothing but the best for the guy as he moves on in his career. Um, but looking ahead to this year, there should be a lot more comfort with that secondary. There's a lot more answers there. Last year, you were concerned at just about every position, and the same argument for the linebacker group. You were concerned with just about everybody in the 2D. There is, I would hope, confidence in those guys this year. And it'll be interesting to see what that translates to because what, what was funny, and you kind of mentioned it already, Garrett, but what was funny is that, okay, if you're, you're unsure about – the secondary you're unsure about the linebackers well the one thing that you were barely sure about was your strength up front on the defensive line Kafusi, Tonga, Leotawa, Fawatea there were some some dudes there but it felt like the, the the plan was okay this is our strength but we better cover our weaknesses we were more afraid to expose our weakness than we were confident in using our strength and so ultimately the defensive line wasn't asked to do the things that I think the defensive line is going to be asked to do this year because they were afraid of being exposed. And I think this year the coaching staff relies more on Kairos Tonga, relies more on those defensive linemen who have high expectations 
and allows the linebackers in the secondary to sink or swim, either to get exposed or to rise to the occasion and play really well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was just looking up really quick. So the returning production for the defense last year was, um, was they were 85th in the country. And so from, of guys, you know, what percentage of the stats coming back from 2018 were rolling forward into 2019. And so I think, like you said, it was, you know, the defensive line, even though they weren't great at getting home pass, it was, you know, they weren't, they really, that was the only thing you could count on. And so it, I think, you know, we will hopefully with some more experience now, you will see some things, you know, move step forward, um, into that and you know we'll take that step forward because i feel very confident in now you know where we were a year ago with the secondary i feel very confident in the defensive backs probably the best that i felt about the defensive backs since that 2012 defense you know when you had mm-hmm. joe sampson and preston hadley back you know playing corner um and so it was the secondary i feel very confident in and then the linebackers i mean they did great against the pass and they got a lot of interceptions and so can they fill the run which is where they really struggled last year's playing downhill and so they need to improve at that and they were all undersized you know last year i think kavika funu was playing middle linebacker at 205 210 pounds they were tiny and so he's a, he's a safety have we talked about that he's moving back and we safety. talked about it a little bit last year wake so he, okay. he's going to be playing that outside backer hybrid strong safety position um this year and so which is a natural fit for his build and so you just have a lot of guys where it's kind of small linebackers getting shoehorned into where they maybe may not have been a best fit and they weren't great playing downhill against the run. And so we got gashed there. And so it was kind of like, okay, we'll just try to not get beat over the top. And eventually the field will get small and they'll struggle and we can force them into a field goal. And if we're trading touchdowns for field goals, we'll come out ahead. was kind of ultimately what it played down to. And so if that, you know, it worked in most games and, you know, it was, something where it was we were in every single game and had a chance. I mean, we were very, very close to should have beat Hawaii, should have beat San Diego State. You know, we're really close to, you know, winning. Should have beat Toledo as well, should have beat USF. Yes, we're close yeah. to winning 10 games. You know, we were kind of blunders, you know, big mistake, a couple of big mistakes away from winning 10 games and no one even batting an eye or thinking about the defense as being a major problem. So I think it got the job done considering you know based on what they were trying to do um but we will see yep i think so so gary you already mentioned it uh we'll get into each position um next week on the show we're going to cut this show a little bit shorter than normal we do have a bonus show coming out this week as well that has already been recorded uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's a secret. It's it's going to be talking about uh, – we, we teamed up with our friends over at the Utah Blockcast to kind of talk about Morgan Scally, uh, Utah defensive coordinator. He was suspended for a racially insensitive text about a month ago, um, a text from several years ago. He was suspended about a month ago, and he was reinstated today. We kind of talked through – I appreciated the Utah guys bringing us on. Uh, to get a rivals and an outsider's experience, uh, I guess, perspective of how Utah handled it. And I, I think we were, were transparent and, and didn't hold back in our feelings at all. Uh, so even though it is some Utah content, I think it will be enjoyable for you guys to listen to. 
before we go, one five-star review to read this week. As always, please keep the five-star reviews coming. Helps us out a ton. Uh, this one was by a great friend of the show, Trav Turner. Uh, it's titled Podcast Serotonin, The Sultry Tones of Jeff and Garrett. Get me through one more day of working from home during the, the damned quarantine time. They also have the best T-shirts and best stickers. Thank you, Trav, for the review. Thank you for supporting the show, both with stickers and T-shirts. He's got both now. Um, great friend of the show. As always, continue to leave those reviews and help us out. Thank you, Trav. It's always, he really is a one of the best fans of the show. and you know, um, so be everyone would do better. The world would be a better place if we all strive to be more like Trav Turner. Amen. If we had more Trav Turners, if Trav Turners were leading the country, I don't think everybody would be protesting down the streets of Bravo right now because Trav Turner would have already fixed it. Yes. So actually, I think, you know, compared to other options, I think writing in Travis Turner might be everybody. If you're listening to this, write in Travis Turner at the ballot box this November. He is the best option that we have. I'm in. Done. Trav, you got my vote. So, well, it's been a good week, Jeff. We've done now two podcasts back to back tonight and uh, we will get them out to our faithful listeners and new listeners alike tomorrow. And so uh, any, any other parting words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Nothing. I I've got to, I've been sitting on Amazon um, really throughout the duration of the show, trying to figure out what toaster oven I'm going to get. Hopefully Amazon can get it to me uh, this week and I can return and report on my toaster oven endeavors this week. Well, I expect that from you and give your toaster oven hell. <laughs> give them hell, Brigham. <laughs>